Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. We're kicking off our new season, season six to be precise. That's right, it's time to close out phase one conversations on Marvel Movie Minute with a season of in-depth conversations about the Avengers. It'll be a season full of team building, intergalactic villains, cast changes, and a controversial leader, and we are here for it. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm pre-assembled. <laughs> You're still in the box. I'm still in the box. <laughs> still in the box. Uh, this is a big season, and what better way to welcome the season than shake things up a bit? In the past, when we've had guests, we generally gave them their pick of a block of five minutes each, which, as a peek behind the scenes did allow us to record all five episodes in one lengthy sitting. Well, this season, we've thrown out the old ways and offered our guests the chance to talk about any five minutes they wanted to discuss. For some, it's still five sequential minutes, but for others, they've taken the opportunity to pick and choose minutes across the length of the film. It is a new way of doing things here, and a bit of an experiment on our part, but, you know, we thought it might allow for some more opportunities for people to have more varied conversations. So with that, we are kicking off our first episode, and we already have a guest! It is a thrill, so without further ado, let's get this party started. Today, we're talking about Minute One, which starts with the Marvel logo and ends with a Chitauri army. Joining us on the show, it is Travis Bowe from the Real Comic Heroes podcast. Hello, Travis. Hello there. So, first question, Travis. Um, what drew you to this specific minute? Because it's such a weird way to kick off what we now think of as, <laughs> you know, the more or less the start of the Avengers, the Infinity Saga, you know. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> uh, Pete, is that uh, your read of this Star Wars yeah, film? Yeah, and it just, it just keeps getting weirder. And I'm in the bag for this movie. Like, I already, like, I just want to say up front, I love this movie. And every time we watch this movie, this opening is weirder. Like, it yeah. just, and I think especially coming off of Captain America, this, like, little, it's a post credit scene tacked onto the beginning of this epic film, and I think it's bonkers. Uh, but yeah. it does give us a chance to talk about the Chitauri. The Chitauri. Chitauri. <laughs> which, which I love. So, I, 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 back to you. I mean, you, you aren't as much in the bag of this movie. I imagine this just lights you up with excitement to talk about how dumb it is. Well, it's it is a strange start for a movie and you know people walking into this know that it's based on comics and a lot of people who walk into this probably watch this opening and just say I don't know it's just a bunch of people from the comics and I don't know who they are. <laughs> like we're hearing a voice of somebody talking who we never really identify. <laughs> yeah. No. It's just a voice and a back of some character yeah. talking on a meteor is basically what <laughs> yeah. this this looks like. Space and Hulk. and talking about the Chitauri, which we get a glimpse of at the end of this minute and uh, and it's, I'll bet it's a, you know what Andy? Yeah. I'll bet dollars to donuts that if you ask someone how this movie starts, they would not be able to tell you this sequence. I'll bet people don't even remember it. That's fair. Yeah, I, people probably remember. Oh, it starts in the the base, the the shield yeah. base when at NASA, uh, right? When Loki Loki lands, basically. Yeah, yeah. Probably, I bet you are right. Yeah. Okay, so you know, obviously, we start with the we get our Marvel logo, we get our Paramount logo, hundred years celebrating Paramount's history, and then we get uh, kind of this blue tesseract glow, which is kind of. Um, 
melding the logos together and introducing us to the story. And we're getting the voice of a character named The Other. Literally, The Other, <laughs> with a capital T, capital O, uh, voiced by Alexis Denisoff, um, well, played by Alexis Denisoff. Um, questions first off, um, is The Other ever identified as The Other in the film? No. In any of the films, other than just in the credits? I don't think so, because he shows up here in Guardians. Guardians of the Galaxy, where he gets killed. Yeah. And I think if if you know if they'd planned all this out, I think this would be someone from the Black Order, Ebony Maw, or maybe like Corvus Glaive, someone like that. I don't I don't even know if Jonathan Hickman had created the Black Order when this movie came out. But I think if to, if they went back and changed things or something, I think this would be that type of person, like the Maw. Well, and it's possible that. The other would have made it to uh, Infinity War and Endgame had it not been for James Gunn mm. to decide that he needed Ronan to look more powerful yeah. and to decide, I want to have him kill uh, the other. And, you know, because but, of that, I don't mean to jump ahead. Was yeah. was the other recast for Guardians? Was it the same actor? Same actor. But I believe they allowed him to have a little more of the actor's persona coming through than he was in this film, which is very hard to hear or very, not hard to hear, but his voice is obviously modulated and he's yeah very yeah. little recognizable. I mean, his face is mostly just makeup and coverings. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, and the other was in the comics, right? I'm not sure. He was in the Avengers uh, adaptation, Thor, the dark world prelude, all the stuff that was like movie tie-ins. I don't think he was never in a primary run. Pretty much it. Yeah. Right. So pretty much created for this and is talking to somebody. I, I really went back and forth over the scene where we have uh, at the start of this minute trying to figure out what the heck the other is standing in front of. A throne. The back, He's on the backside of a throne. Well, it's, it's scripted as uh, two ways. I found two versions of the script. One says the other speaks to a disembodied figure in a chair hmm. and the other says kneeling behind a throne, a clothed armor figure known as the other bows. So it's a throne, it's a chair, but it's very hard to kind of tell it, I mean, when you're looking at it from our angle coming up behind it, I don't know. Did, could you tell it was a throne or did you know, because like you had, you'd read about it. It is very abstract. I think because I know who's, in the throne, it reads more as a throne now watching it. Um, I, I think they're going for the little space uh, floating meteor fortress thing that Thanos has in the Infinity Gauntlet storyline. Because this is like a – it's like, yeah, like a big stone structure with a big throne floating out in space. And I think that's what they're going for here, which works in comics. I'm kind of glad that this uh, – I, I don't know, location doesn't really come up too often in these movies, you know, because, again, it works in comics, I think. Yeah. So that's why I think it reads more as a throne to me is that I, I vaguely get what they're going for, I think. Yeah, I think it's a gift for those who know already. But, man, apart from a few, just a few cuts of Loki in this movie that we'll come to, we don't see it much. It's really relegated to pre and post credits. 
Yeah. And it's not even identified. I mean, the, the, yeah. there's one draft of the script where it just says exterior unknown area of space. <laughs> and then it says a floating staircase among the rocks. We threw in the towel exterior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> the other one gives us a little more. It says exterior throne room space night, but like nothing calls night. it sanctuary, which is what it has come to be called. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, all of this is a is a I don't know. I guess it's a tricky way to start a film. It's it's very fantastical. I mean, I know we've had Thor and we've had them, you know, with Asgard standing on the edge of the Rainbow Bridge, falling into space, and they seem fine breathing and all that good stuff. Uh, but this is suddenly we have like meteors floating in space and people seem living on it. So it's very fantastical. We don't know who these characters are, what they're talking about, other than the Tesseract. And so as the start of this big culmination film it does seem like a strange way to bring it in uh bring kind of everything together and so i guess i mean i guess it works right in a way where you're throwing a bunch of mysterious stuff at the audience would you say that that kind of could work yes and no um i think introducing the tatauri here i think is a waste because by the end of the first act no one's going to remember seeing a you know quick shot of these CGI gray army. You know, I think the place to introduce them would have been in Loki's little mind bridge kind of flash when he goes to have a conversation with the other. Introduce them there as he's, you know, you know, and now your army is ready. They'll be they'll be there, you know, soon or something like that. You know, then have Loki aware that he's going to be commanding this army or something like that, but introduce them then show them off, you know, show the, have that shot from two towers where Sauron and uh, Wormtongue get a look at the, the army of Urukai, you know, something yeah, like that. Sure. And then Loki can be kind of like in awe of what he's about to do um, here to, to throw in the Chitari. It, it, I, yeah, I think it's just kind of a waste. You know, mentioning the Tesseract, I think, is fine because it was in the last movie. Yeah. Kind of a bridge there. That makes sense. But we don't know what it's for here. It just it's an abstract. This this opening feels like what they what the X-Men series would do with intros of like flying through DNA strands. And it's just yes. abstract. It's it's abstract <laughs> comic book movie yeah. stuff that I think they thought they had to do because it's a comic book movie. You know, it's Joss Whedon directing a comic movie, so I don't know. But why is my question? Like, it feels so much like it's checking a box that nobody needed to write down. Like, we we already hit it. It's not like they're introducing us to space, to Marvel space for the first time, right? We've already had Thor. We know that there exist things on other planes and other universes. We've already earned that. And it was fine. Like, it was fine. We did a whole season on it. Why are they doing that? And I would I would. Just amplify, why do they hide? Why do they feel it necessary to show us Loki with the outfit, but not show us Loki? Like, what is the point of of hiding the character? I think this pickup shot. Th yeah, this like right. I think this whole <laughs> thing is is uh, weirdly constructed. And I'm with you. I think introducing the Chitauri here sets probably the wrong tone for a movie that spends most of its runtime much more grounded than space meteors, floating space rocks. 
Well, and I think what the way that you described it, Pete, actually is the perfect way to describe this. It feels like a post-credit sequence at the start of the movie. Because none of this feels really connected to the story. If we're building a story where Loki is our villain, it seems like we should be starting very specifically with Loki getting us into the story rather than this kind of this disembodied voice from this character who we we barely get a chance to look (laughs) at talking about stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense to us with this army that we've never seen before of things we can barely discern in the quick image we get. And then no hide to care about, right? Yeah. And then hide our villain. We hide mm-hmm. the villain, yeah. So you don't even know, like, who is who's getting this scepter and why? And it's just, it's such a strange way to start this film. Imagine getting this as a post-credit sequence to Captain America. Yes, yeah, that's a teaser. Because yeah. I think what was the end teaser on Captain America? It was a trailer for Avengers, right? Well, it's a it's a cut scene from about twenty minutes into this of. Of Steve oh, right. boxing the, and Fury yeah. comes in and talks to him and recruits him. Yeah. And then a trailer, more or less. And then right? essentially, yeah, yeah, really terrible. Trailer. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, if this could have been ready then, man, that would have been a way to. What was the time difference between Captain America and, and this? Six months? I mean, it was. It was a year. About, a year. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it does make me wonder. Like, I, I'm curious about the history of this now because. This might be a good time to talk about this alternate opening that we had with Maria Hill being interrogated, because had this been ready and had this been an, a post-credit sequence at the end of Captain America, that would have made so much more sense. And then we would have had this, potentially, this alternate opening with Maria Hill kicking things off for this movie. And, I mean, we'll talk about how this works But still, that probably would have made a lot more sense. It would have left things mysterious. We would have been like, what is all this stuff going on? And then leading us into the long wait, keeping us excited for when the Avengers did open. I think that would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially because, like, when you talk about hiding our central antagonist, he has such a dope entrance in this movie later. Like, in just minutes, he makes a a perfect entrance. And so, yeah, that's tough. I want to, just speaking of his entrance, though, I am a little confused because um, at the end of Thor, we were a little confused (laughs) as to what happens with Loki. It's like, he falls into space and just kind of falls. Apparently, according to the Marvel Wiki, it's a wormhole, and he falls into a wormhole. Mm. This wormhole takes him to Sanctuary, where he encounters the other who offers the chance for him to serve under Thanos' command, giving him the scepter, all this good stuff. But there is also a post-credit sequence at the end of Thor that shows him mind-controlling Eric Selvig as he is getting recruited by Nick Fury to join uh, the uh, shield and help with the Tesseract energy exploration. So I am a little confused about kind of where Loki's been <laughs> through, okay. all, through all of this. It just, it just hit me that he could, Loki could have been on sanctuary and could have done like a mind. I don't think he would have had to have been next to Selvig or like physically been there. I think, you know, through reading Thor comics, he could have, Essentially done what Doctor Strange does and, oh, what's it called? Astral project himself to Selvig during that whole thing and, and kind of manipulate him then. So yeah. that would work for me if he was on Sanctuary when he was controlling Selvig. 
manipulating him. It's yeah, and that's entirely possible. I guess it was let's see, Thor when the end of Thor happens, it is the end of Fury's big week. So that was June second, two thousand ten. That's when he falls into the wormhole. Now this film starts May first, two thousand twelve. So it is almost two full years. Now, I don't know if Thanos, the other Loki, would be taking two full years to put this plan into ma- into place. Right. Um, oh, and I should also say, he falls into the wormhole June 2nd. June 7th, so five days later, is when Fury actually has that conversation with Eric Selvig about helping with the Tesseract. Mm. So, I don't know. It makes me think that... Maybe that maybe he wasn't on sanctuary yet, but but I still like your idea. Maybe he was somewhere, and but then I guess the question is why why does he have that cover? Why does he, you know, take over Selvig for that brief moment, and then wait two years really to do something with it? Yeah, yeah, right. I've never really thought about this movie in relation to everything that comes after this because this movie doesn't really set up the infinity gem saga like like what we come to know you know with infinity war and endgame because why wouldn't thanos just show up take the tesseract you know they give him they they're handing loki the what mind the mind stone the mind stone is they're in handing, the scepter, giving away yeah. an infinity gem yeah right when there's another one on earth that's not really protected i mean loki goes and gets it by himself so why (laughs) thinking about this whole movie now i don't know it doesn't really make a lot of sense i mean at the time it makes sense it works perfectly i think but thinking about the thanos we know later yeah i don't know why this stone this the tesseract is allowed to remain on earth you know well it it goes to like we give we give feige and company a lot of credit for yeah. the overall architecture of of the MCU. Sure. But looking at this movie as a standalone item, I think it's really great. Mm-hmm. It also, though, demands consideration of whether or not the ideas set out in the Infinity Saga were fully baked yet, right? right. For that yeah, very I don't point, think they were. I don't no, think yeah. they were. And I don't, I think the same thing about Loki. I think Loki, because of all the things you guys have already litigated about Loki and what they were doing with Loki post-Thor, um, it, it, it says, you know what, we didn't know we'd have kind of a rock star in Loki. Like, people actually like Loki more than we thought they would. Let's figure out what to do with Loki. That's what this whole movie screams to me, is we don't quite know what we're doing with some of these characters that are have proven more popular. We didn't expect to use them like we have, and, and here they are. You know, just look at the at what happened with Coulson in later in this movie that is another data yeah. point on the we don't know what we have here here's somebody who's vastly more popular we've got to figure out how to do this uh, thus Tahiti so you know I know we'll talk more about that as the season progresses but that's that's what I'm getting out of this rewatch yeah yeah I, I definitely have those same questions with Thanos because I'm like <laughs> he's giving away an infinity stone yeah the the tesseract is a very easy one to get apparently it yeah. only it only takes, and you know, we can talk about the logic of how Loki arrives. Uh, actually, I guess Pete and I, you, you and I, will talk later in this week about mm-hmm. about that. But still, it's like, couldn't Thanos have just done that and then have two and not yeah. have dealt with Loki <laughs> right. in, at all? Yeah, <laughs> but hey, yeah, yeah. And going back to the alternate opening 
Yes, yes. Let's the whole conversation that's happening there, that almost feels like they're setting up more of a a secret invasion or a civil war storyline as like the big, you know, culminating thing because they're just they're grilling Maria Hill about, you know, what what did you think Fury did wrong or right or, you know, they're like she's really anti Nick Fury, it seems like. And they're also questioning, like, what what was he thinking? You know, all this, it just feels like they're building mistrust here, you know. It was a very different uh, yeah. take on the story initially. Maria Hill was kind of against Nick Fury. She was a bigger part of the story. I, I know one of the reasons that they pulled this as as an open to the film is that they felt like they needed to be focusing on the the main characters as opposed to her. And, and putting her right at the start seemed to make her this really big character. Although I would argue when she finally, when she does show up in uh, a couple minutes from now, it seems because we don't have any of this, it just seems like, who is this person and why are we following her now? Like, it, it seems like she never gets an introduction anymore because of that. But the whole thing is she was set up as this antagonistic toward Nick Fury. There was a lot of division between the two of them. She was set up as potentially a character to take over shield from him through the world council and because she was kind of dealing with them and so it's i don't know is this strange thing to kind of build this antagonism between these two characters and then to decide no we really want her to always be on fury's side and so they cut a lot of these scenes although and and pete i guess we'll talk about this over the course of the season and we can look how is Maria and her relationship with with Nick seem at this particular point in time? Does it seem like they're best friends or does right. it actually seem like she's a little antagonistic here? Yeah. Because yeah. I'll tell you, in coming minutes, she seems a little antagonistic. So It's unfortunate because she's really good in this scene. I really like Kobe Smulders in this sequence. I don't like what is being presented as far as the what they're talking about. I don't, I don't know if we're going to break it down, go through it, kind of. Yeah, sure. Just setting it up for people who haven't seen it. It starts off with seeing the aftermath of New York. You're seeing all the damage that has been done. Weirdly, it kind of gives this sense of kind of post 9-11 disaster mm. relief in New York City as cops are kind of helping people off the streets and all this stuff. You hear Maria Hill narrating. And you see Captain America standing there looking at people. And then it kind of goes to the World Security Council as she is being interrogated about everything. And it's 48 hours after all of the uh, the invasion had happened. I don't know why she still looks like she hasn't bathed. I, I, just, I noted that, too. <laughs> it's one of those. No triage in, 48 in that 48 hours. hours. Yeah. But anyway, and then it's this conversation about mistakes being made. She seems very antagonistic toward Nick Fury. Uh, he's painted as reckless. And she's scoffing at this whole thing of him going using these superheroes and all this sort of stuff. It ends on a very weird note with her kind of, you know, getting this look in Trailing her eye off. like she's drifting off. And then it cuts to, um, you know, uh, Fury arriving at the um, the shield compound. So the thing it needed to end with, I think, is, you know, because she she talks about he's he's thinking about superheroes and he brought those people here. And and then her final line there is. And the worst of all, he was right. If it, if she would have added or if they would have added, you know, he was right about bringing these heroes together. That's, you know, I think that's what this needs. And would have resolved with an entertaining bit of conflict. Like she is yeah. conflicted inside that I can 
totally see that. I think I, part of the thing I think is is really, and this is me being super skeptical about this, knowing what we know about uh, the movie and about casting and about, you, you know, economy of character. It feels like Maria Hill was diminished because a stronger Maria Hill in some eyes might have taken away from a strong black widow. Like we can't have two strong militant women on mm. the team. And I don't love that. That's where my brain goes because I too like Colby smolders a lot. And, um, and I think she would have been a great asset to amplify her role on the team. And I think she has yeah. been handled similarly, like haphazardly throughout the rest of this of the series and the shows and and that's frustrating this movie feels absurdly out of balance to me in that regard uh, it feels like they were scared of a stronger maria hill character and that definitely makes sense uh, i mean i can see from their perspective saying we're starting off with this character no one in the audience has ever met before right and 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 thrusting her into the spotlight as a major character of the movie and we still have you know, six superheroes plus Nick plus a villain plus all these other Chitari and all these other things. Um, there's a lot of people that we have to deal with. And now we also have this character that we have to really build up. But because they started it this way and then they removed all of that, it ends up making it feel very weird when we when she actually does come into the film, because it just seems like. Who's this assistant that suddenly yeah. is getting so much um, prominence? Because I don't I even wish... think they say her name. <laughs> Uh, the the display text does say Maria oh, Hill in right. this, Inter in this it does. yeah in this, in yeah. this. but sure. in the actual film it's oh, just right. she's just there with Nick and then they're having these conversations yeah. and you're like who is this person that he's talking to I think Fury may address her as Hill but yeah you don't really know and I think at this point she was a fairly new character I think uh, maybe a Bendis like he might have created her a couple years prior for. Uh, Avengers dis disassembled and and then she became you know kind of in, in the spotlight in the Marvel comics in 2006 with uh Civil War she became the director of Shield at one point yeah but she never the character never really gets her her dues in in any of the movies really well right. and in the scope of what they were trying to do with this bringing in this character who potentially was going to take over Shield that makes sense, right? If she had done that in the comics, then to have the have her coming in as a potential antagonistic character for Nick, then that could have worked. But um, yeah, as it is, she just she does seem misused, uh, unfortunately. And I don't know if having this element in the film would have helped at all because it it is introducing kind of this extra level of, of antagonism and. I mean, I guess if it was there and I mean, if the film was like a half hour longer or something, we could have had a little more development of it. But I I would have I think I would have struggled had it started this way. I don't know if I would have mm -hmm. liked it. There's some good visuals, I think, in, in this scene, the particularly the the shot of the police officer, like kind of helping the lady and then it pans back and and cap is there just kind of taking it all in like i like that that i kind of wish had gotten thrown into the montage at the end um but then there's stuff like it cut to an angry hulk you know when she's talking about i don't know mistakes being made maybe or something like that they cut yeah. to hulk you know hulking out and that doesn't really work here for me i mean i know that was a big 
sequence in this movie is is the Hulk and the Helicarrier thing. But if this movie had featured the Avengers versus the Hulk, kind of the way the original comic had, had you know, or basically Hulk as being controlled by Loki, you know, if that was an element of this movie, then maybe I'd like that here. But this that doesn't really. Uh, yeah, this whole thing did no payoff. It's it feels like it's weirdly setting other things up. Like she's talking about friends were killed, you mm. know, even heroes and stuff like that. And yeah. you see Iron Man's mask fall to the ground, and it's, it's it seems like weird implications. Yeah, as as kind of heavy a weird handed. like yeah, heavy handed faux flashback to wait a minute, does Iron Man die in this right. movie? Yeah, it's like it seems like it's setting up some strange things that don't ever happen. So I also think the at this point, you know, we're more or less being introduced to the World Security Council, and that whole idea never really goes anywhere. I think they come back in Winter Soldier, but it's really an element of the this world that they just forget about at a certain point. I mean, it feels like it works more for, like, the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show, and I think even Powers Booth was in that a couple times, right? Okay. Yeah. So it feels sure. like it feels appropriate for that level of, you know, being this oversight committee, but I don't like the even in in the finished movie, I don't care for the World Security Council stuff. Well, I suppose it works in in for me only because uh because of how it plays out in Winter Soldier when one of them is there, uh Jenny Agutter's character. And it, it like it, it actually I, I suppose the whole thing kind of falls apart because of everything that happens with uh, Robert Redford and and the whole dissolution of S.H.I.E.L.D. So I guess that kind of makes it work for me. Um, if anything, it, ju- it does just seem kind of like, you know, like uh, the secret puppet leaders behind our government is what it feels like, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about the Chitari? Yeah, we don't get a lot of them here, but um, yes, let's talk about them. I, I just want to talk about this setting up the role of the Chitari in this movie. And I think it goes to the the alternate opening with Maria Hill, because it feels like they were at at least at some point leaning toward maybe an originalist approach to the Chitari that is later, you know, plays out with, you know, other characters like the scrolls, right? That that and but my background on the Chitari history, I've not read a lot of those original comics. So I'm I'm I would like to know and get a little bit of an education about where this Chitari came from and how we ended up with them working for Thanos in the MCU. It was really just a, a scripted thing that they decided to do because the Chitari in the comics were a shape shifting villain and they weren't introduced until the Ultimates right. um, in O2. And so they just kind of ended up creating this modified new alien race like they totally just came up with something new it didn't they didn't want it to feel too much like the scrolls uh or the kree they wanted it to feel somewhat different because people had been kind of speculating oh is it going to be one of them is it going to be the scrolls the kree what's going to happen here they were just trying to come up with something that felt different from them they weren't shapeshifters and it allowed the artists to really kind of play around with kind of creating something new. I don't know if I'm really a fan of the look of them. Like, I feel like 
it takes so long for me to look at them to figure out what I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. end up until, especially here, because they're just in shadow mm-hmm. and blackness. Uh, even later, like, I really have to, like, pause. This show will be perfect for this because I'll be able to really <laughs> pause and spend a lot of time yeah. looking at these Chitari uh, to figure out what am I looking at here with yeah. this, with this w- creature. Yeah. Once you do get a look at them, I think they have a cool look. Uh, I don't know why they feel the need to put these face masks on them that they don't need them to breathe necessarily because they take them off at one point to scream at the Avengers, you know. Yeah. So I don't think it's an oxygen or a, a breathing thing. It's just, it just feels it's like just a bit of uh, armament, like yeah. uniform, uh, yeah. protect your face. Yeah, I mean, I had always heard that they just legally they couldn't use scrolls in this movie just because they were tied up with Fox. So they had to come up with something and yeah the ultimate comics were using a scroll like race there so they just took the name because it it was available it was available. And, <laughs> yeah and i guess awesome. what they really needed in context of this film wasn't a race that needed to really do anything other than just provide a mass of an army mm-hmm. like that's really all they do here is that the Chitari basically just turns into a massive um, army that Loki yep. gets to wield and that, you know, we'll see, um, you know, later in the franchise as well. So it's just one of those things that's just there when they need a lot of bodies. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the one of one of the few downsides of the MCU after this point is a lot of these movies end with a gray CGI army. Certainly have it in Justice League. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's something that happens a lot. I mean, you could say the same thing about the orcs and the Urukai, really. It's it's just you're getting this mass of some sort of powerful creature that people that now have to battle. And it's just there for your villain to have as a tool to wield. I mean, to a certain extent, it was the same thing in the last film with, with Red Skull. Yeah, Red Skull and the Hydra soldiers, right? The Hydra oh, yeah, soldiers, even, which, even Thor and the Frost Giants and some of that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I think we're always going to have it. I do think it's interesting coming hot off of Captain America because in the because the Chitari were a Captain America foe in World War Two. And I, I think that's fascinating that they took this one that we had for with Red Skull and his army. And now we have uh, the Chitari coming back to at least at least Cap gets to fight the Chitari, I guess. That's <laughs> that's a nod. Well, uh, we kind of end with the Chitari on on this. Um, so I guess that's everything for our first minute, unless either of you have any other specifics that you want to chat about as far as what we're seeing here. Real quick, specifically, what do you guys think about the the Loki's staff, the scepter, you know, that whole... Kind of a central, central trophy in this movie, I guess, yeah? Yeah, it, it's... I mean, it's... You don't get to see it well here. You get to see them... You know, the other is passing it to him. It just it's its so dark. It's just like, OK, is it a spear? It's something with a glowing end. But yeah, when we do get to see the scepter, I do like the look. Oh, do you? I, I do. In retrospect, though, I can't help but uh, feel that it shouldn't be glowing blue. I feel like it should be glowing a different color yeah. because it's not the color of the stones in it. But right. whatever, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I I don't I didn't want to start complaining about the scepter immediately. I have <laughs> other complaints later. I'll, I'll, 
I'll start first if you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I I think in my notes I was watching the movie this weekend. In my notes, at some point during the movie, I write, "Who the hell does the scepter think it is?" <laughs> like, so I, I I open the floor to you. <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> to me, it looks like it it should come in a cardboard box and say in big bold letters, you know, Loki's Havoc Staff with lights and and battle sounds, new from Kenner. Right. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Hasbro Pulse, one-to-one scale. Hilarious, hilarious. I dig that it either turns into a staff, or I think that's really Loki magic, that he's turning it into a staff. Um, So I, I like that aspect of it, but... Yeah, because he turns it into a cane later and hobbles oh, yeah. around like yeah, a real pop. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> In the art of the Avengers book, there are some images of the finished one where you're seeing it just by itself standing. And it looks, I, I think that it looks so nice when it's just standing by itself as a prop. I'm like, that is a cool thing I'd love to have hanging on my wall. It just is a great prop. I don't know if it's ever shot as well as it needs to be to make it look as good as it should. I had the same problem with Thor and a lot of the Warriors, Warriors 3, especially Volstag. Like, oh, yeah. they look like they're draped in plastic and yes. ca- carrying plastic weapons. You know, yes. that's what this looks like Cosplay. to me. Cosplay. Cosplay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. I I I do have like I I like I I just feel like the design of the scepter is such that it's it is unclear what the function is a weapon an idol an artifact a stone something of an artifact of worship like what is it what is it meant to be it doesn't necessarily feel like a tool of ruling to me it has the word scepter in it it doesn't feel to me the design doesn't feel like a ruling artifact i think if it came with like earlier when i talked about having a flashback you know in in the loki talks to the other situation where I would then present him with the the army, say, you wield that staff, they will follow you. Yeah, but even then, it's like, what is it about that particular tool? I mean, is it because, like, the Mind Stone is controlling the Chitari then? Like, I buy that. Again, it, it yeah, it, it leads to a lot of other questions. But in the scope of a scepter, I guess I've never really thought of a scepter specifically as a weapon, more as something a leader holds you know just to kind of stand and so it's interesting that in the scope of this film that they're turning a scepter into something that uh, does get used a little more as a weapon from time to time yeah but, for yeah. sure and also a pokey stick <laughs> and also a pokey stick yes loki pokey stick <laughs> <laughs> the loki pokey stick there it is there's the episode title right here coming out of the gate hot the i stole that from stick. kevin smith so i can't oh, take okay. credit for that. Oh, okay <laughs> Thank you, Kevin Smith. Uh, You're in our hearts. Uh, Okay, well, that's it for uh, episode one, everybody. Um, We don't mean to be completely negative about it. It's it is a fun beginning for the movie. It just leaves us a lot of questions. So Pete and I will be back to talk about minute two tomorrow. Uh, Travis, you're going to be joining us later in the season. I can't remember how far into the season, but you will be back. Indeed. We're looking forward to it. Um, Why don't you tell everybody where they can tune into you and some of the the stuff that you're doing out there on the internet. Sure. You can find me on real comic heroes. That's real with two E's. And over there we do uh, comic book movie reviews and we do them in release order. So we're still way back in the uh, mid to late nineties. As of this recording, Uh, we did uh, spawn and steel 
uh, things like that. So we won't get to the Avengers for, yeah, say 20 years. Yeah, I was going to say 30, 40 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, check that out. That's awesome. What was I? I joined you on The Punisher. Correct. Dolph Lundgren. Yes. That was a fun one to talk about. That was the first time I had seen that movie. So hmm. it, was, it, was, yeah. it was fun to talk about. Um, well, check that out, everybody. We'll have links in the show notes. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Minute 2. So thanks as always, Pete. I don't think the floor is going to fall out from under us yet, but soon. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This week's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.